Welcome back. There's a lot to talk about this week. But before we do, I just want to take a moment to let you know it's time to show yourself some love. It's 2023 and you can help yourself to delicious, easy to follow recipes that support your healthy lifestyle and taste good too with Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Get 60% off plus free shipping when you use code EMILYBAKER60 at greenchef.com slash EMILYBAKER60. Today, we have a very full episode talking about all the new developments in the Rust case. Alec Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed have both now been criminally charged in New Mexico, and Alec Baldwin's been sued again by Helena Hutchins' family, and Alec Baldwin filed a motion to recuse or remove the special prosecutor in New Mexico. So we're going to be going through all three of those developments today, trying not to get stuck in the weeds because we are still very much in the weeds covering Alec Murdoch. I know it's a lot of Alex. It's a lot, it's a lot happening. So we're going to just cover this one today and, um, and back to trial coverage after this. Let me know if this episode is helpful in the comments and your reviews down below. And thank you for always making The Emily Show a top podcast in its categories across platforms. I see all of you listening on Spotify. I see you. I know you're there. You're killing it over there too. All right, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. As I said, we have a lot to talk about today. And the first thing we are going to start with are the two criminal charges that are facing Alec Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, and talk about those real quick, what those charges mean, why there are different theories of the charges. Don't ask me, though, to explain why this prosecutor asked for additional funds to charge Baldwin and up to four individuals, then announced that they were contemplating charges, then told us what they had had for breakfast, then told us that charges were coming, then filed the charges, and then did like another press conference about them. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the thought behind it. I don't know why keeping everybody in the loop so much. I don't know at all. I don't have any answers for you. I was as annoyed as you were. Why not just, I don't know, charge them. And then if a statement is needed to explain the charges, make that statement. And that's it. That's all. Let it go with that. It just, it's odd to me. The whole way that this unfolded is odd to me. What's not odd to me is that there are charges. I'm not surprised. Look, I don't see how Helena Hutchins is killed on a movie set by a gun that was being used as a prop if people aren't negligent. And likely, multiple people aren't negligent. And that's where we're at with this. So let's get into that indictment. Oh, it's not an indictment. If I say indictment, I'm wrong. It is criminal charges, and it's because Tom Girardi was just indicted, and because I cover so many federal cases, my brain has just gone there. But we're going to go to the criminal charges in the information for Alec Baldwin first. 
And for those of you on audio, I will talk our way through it. And for those of you on video, you get to see it too. So state of New Mexico versus Alexander Ray Baldwin. I had no idea that his middle name was Ray, R-A-E. Not a clue at all. January 31st, 2023. Um, And then it has the case number on it, criminal information. The district attorney of Santa Fe County, New Mexico states that on or about the dates listed below in the county and state, the above named defendant did commit the crimes of. Count one, involuntary manslaughter on or about October 21st, 2021 in Santa Fe County, New Mexico. The above named defendant did cause the death of Helena Hutchins, committed in the commission of an unlawful act to wit negligent use of a deadly weapon. And then it lists the code, a fourth degree felony, contrary to, and then lists the code. In the alternative, so this is the second part, involuntary manslaughter on or about October 21st, 2021. The above-named defendant did cause the death of Helena Hutchins, committed in the commission of a lawful act, which might produce death in an unlawful manner or without due caution and circumscription, a fourth-degree felony, and then it gives a code section. What's interesting about this is it adds two different charging options. So one is this charge while committing an unlawful act, and they said that unlawful act is negligent use of a deadly weapon, and this is what the AD, Dave Halls, has pled to. But in the alternative, it's doing a lawful act without the due caution and circumscription, and then they add a weapon enhancement to that act. And again, I talked about that in the last episode when I went through what these two different sections meant There are some interesting case notes that I want to look into more about when a weapon is used that the level of proof might need to be even a little bit lower Give with the due caution and circumscription. So it's, you know, not the highest standard in the world on the the state of mind that's needed. The state requests a first felony appearance within 30 days, and we know that they've scheduled that, and we know that that'll be on February 24th, and they the DA in their press conference said that they can appear by, possibly by Zoom if they don't need to appear in court. They might appear in court because Baldwin filed that motion. We'll talk about that. And then request a preliminary hearing scheduled within 60 days. And of course, they can waive preliminary hearing hearing or waive those dates. And then this was served on Baldwin's attorney. So that is Baldwin's criminal information. We're going to go take a look real quick at Hannah Gutierrez-Reed's criminal information, though much of the same because it's the exact same charges. But first, a thank you to our sponsor. If the cases I cover have shown you anything, it's that life can unfortunately be really unpredictable. And one of the adulting things you have to think about is life insurance. And I know that seems like a lot of adulting, but Policy Genius is actually created to modernize the life insurance industry and make it easier for you to find a policy that fits you and that's affordable. They make it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $39 per month for $2 million in coverage. Some options offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, which lets you trust their guidance. There are no added fees and they keep your details private. 
It's no wonder that they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net, and you deserve a smarter way to buy it. Head to policygenius.com slash Lawnard or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com slash Lawnard. Thank you, Policy Genius. Let's head back to today's show. And for Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, we see them filing this under the name Hannah Gutierrez with the same counts, involuntary manslaughter, committing an unlawful act, the negligent use of a deadly weapon, and then involuntary manslaughter in the alternative, committing a lawful act in a manner which might produce death or without due caution or circumscription with the firearm enhancement, and then requesting the same dates. And those will be given on the same date. This was delivered to her attorney um, in Santa Fe. Because remember, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed also has a lawsuit going on against the prop house and the person who supplied her as the armor with the props, uh, PDQ arm and prop. So there is still that lawsuit going on that actually had quite a lot of her side of the story in it. But if we want more of what happened on this set, we need simply go as far as the probable cause statement. And I love that we're getting to see some of the probable cause statements. It gives us quite a lot of information about what the prosecution has done, what evidence they have, and what they expect to prove in their case. So we're going through now Alec Baldwin's probable cause statement that was filed by the state, and then we will move into his motion to disqualify the prosecutor, and then into the new lawsuit in California with Helena Hudgens' family. So this is State of Mexico versus Alexander Ray Baldwin III. The background and synopsis is much of what we've heard before. On October 21st, 2021, in the state of, sorry, in the county of Santa Fe, state of New Mexico, a shooting involving a handgun revolver firearm occurred and resulted in the death of Helena Hutchins and the serious injury of Joel Souza. Note, Souza has not had any charges filed with regard to the injury to him, though I think that could have happened. They chose not to, and that's where we're at. The shooting involved a 45 caliber revolver and occurred on a Western movie set located in rural Santa Fe County. And then they listed more about the set. They talked about the rehearsal. And they say through these statements, interviews, and evidence, it was determined that after lunch on October 21st, 2021, the crew, production staff, camera crew, and actors were preparing for a scene set in the church. At this point, Baldwin was seated in what is referred to and appears to be a church on the movie set. He was in possession of a 45 caliber long Colt revolver-type firearm. The firearm is a single-action revolver handgun, which requires the cocking of the exposed hammer, which then rotates the cylinder, and then the pressing of a trigger required to fire the weapon. In front of Baldwin standing were victims Helena Hutchins and Joel Souza. Hutchins and Souza were viewing and moving the camera for a possible setup for a later scene. Through these same statements, interviews, and physical evidence, it was learned that Helena Hutchins was the director of photography, Joel Souza the director and writer. Information and evidence obtained showed Baldwin was seated in a pew facing in a north direction. Baldwin was practicing drawing and pointing the weapon for the scene with guidance and instruction from Helena Hutchins and Joel Souza. The setup was to be a close-up of Baldwin and the firearm as he drew the weapon and pointed it. Hutchins and Souza were viewing the practice scene on a monitor. Baldwin drew the revolver from the holster, pointed it at Helena Hutchins, and fired the weapon. It goes on to say when reviewing the script and witness interviews for this particular scene and close-up shot, evidence indicates the scene and shot did not require the weapon to be fired. 
It also was determined by consultation with expert armorers that in a rehearsal, a plastic gun or replica gun should be used as no firing of blanks is required. However, Baldwin fired the single-action 45 long-coat revolver, revolting in the discharge of a projectile that struck and traveled through the right armpit of Helena Hutchins, exited her back, then struck Joel Souza in the right shoulder and launched into his right back. They then go through calling personnel, personnel showing up, um, Joel Souza being transported and operated on and the bullet being removed from him. They go through Helena being pronounced by medical personnel. And then the fact that her death was ruled a gunshot wound to the chest. They then talk about firearm ammunition and Baldwin as an actor and shooter. They also talk about Baldwin as a producer. They say statements and evidence show Baldwin was not present for required firearms training prior to the commencement of filming. They also then say, in a deposition taken from Reed, she stated Baldwin had very limited training on the cross draw that was required for the scene on the 21st and limited training in firearms as to how to check his own firearm as to whether it was unloaded or loaded, in which Reed felt it was very important in his role as Rust. A training session for at least an hour or more in length was scheduled, but the actual training consisted of only approximately 30 minutes, as according to Reed, Baldwin was distracted and talking on his cell phone to his family during the training. Interesting isn't it? It goes on to say that Baldwin approached responding deputies on the day of the shooting, wanting to talk to them because he was the one who, quote, fired the gun. He was referred to and later interviewed by detectives. And that interview I've discussed, it's available online and it's available on my playlist covering the Rust shootings. Baldwin later asserted that he never fired the revolver and that it had just, quote, unquote, gone off. Baldwin made this assertion public as well in multiple media interviews conducted after the shooting. Many media interviews and law enforcement interviews were conducted by Baldwin, and he displayed very inconsistent accounts of what happened during the incident when firing the gun that killed Hutchins. So for every single law nerd that asked, Emily, do you think his interviews will be used against him? And every single time, what did I say? Oh, I said, yes. Here we are at all of the interviews being used against him. It's in the probable cause declaration. It will absolutely be in evidence. It's absolutely something on the prosecution's mind. And they listed it here. His interviews were inconsistent. So yes, don't give interviews while there's an open investigation. But it seemed that Baldwin very much wanted the public to hear his side of the story. And he might have talked himself into a conviction and a charge more than out of it, because the inconsistent statements are going to be difficult to get around. No statement you're protected from. If you make no statement and you are criminally charged, the prosecutor can't even mention it. You have a constitutional right to shut up, but it only works if you, in fact, shut up. And then if you do shut up, the prosecution can't get up there and say, oh my God, wouldn't someone who's innocent like say something? No. Your right extends. They can't bring it up in court that you didn't say anything. Can't even mention it. It can't be held against you that you said nothing. It can only be held against you that you talk. So thank you, Alec Baldwin, for making the job of prosecutors easy. Signed, a former prosecutor. It's so much easier when you talk. 
so much easier. So much easier. Because then you're locked into a statement before you know what the investigation is going to show. You have the absolute right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. Those, those are definitive statements of fact. Those, those are the facts. I have said enough. Or maybe not. <laughs> I'm exercising my right to shut up. This is the shortest podcast episode ever. Bye, everybody. <laughs> it's, been, it's been great. Oh, it's been a long day. Let's keep going. They then go on to say that photo and video evidence from inside the church on the day of the shooting show some of the rehearsal and they clearly depict Baldwin's actions prior to the shooting. Quote, the photos and videos clearly show Baldwin multiple times with his finger inside the trigger guard and on the trigger while manipulating the hammer while drawing, pointing, and holstering the revolver. He pulled the trigger. They have proof that he pulled the trigger. He said he pulled the trigger. And then it goes to the FBI crime lab. And at the crime lab, they conducted a function malfunction check of the revolver. This involved trying to get the weapon to fire without the trigger being depressed, i.e. striking the hammer at various multiple angles against a solid object and striking the hammer of the revolver with an actual hammer. So they took a hammer and they wailed on the revolver without depressing the trigger. And you know what it didn't do? Shoot anything. It did not fire. They said the revolver did not malfunction, quote, i.e., fire when it should not slash accidentally. This analysis clearly showed that the weapon could not, quote, unquote, accidentally fire. For the weapon to fire, the trigger had to have been depressed or pressed. And then they go on about the other safety features of the weapon and the fact that they could not make it accidentally fire. They say the FBI additionally analyzed various types and kinds of ammunition seized from the scene, including the prop truck. This was fascinating new information to me. A total of five suspected live rounds, one spent casing of a live round that was discharged causing the shooting were seized by investigators. Evidence and statements indicate that aside from what Hannah Gutierrez-Reed may have brought onto set with her, all weapons and ammunition from the production were obtained and supplied by PDQ Arm and Prop. Detectives investigating these facts, including the service of a search warrant at the place of business at PDQ Arm and Prop, who was the supplier of the dummies and blanks to Rust, several suspected live rounds of 45 long Colt caliber cartridges were seized as a result of that search warrant. Then they took it to the explosives chemistry examination. Chemistry, y'all. They did an explosive chemistry examination of the rounds, which showed that the smokeless powder in the live rounds found on the scene did not match the live round seized from PDQ. This means the live rounds on rust did not match the rounds explosive chemistry taken from PDQ arm and prop. Seriously, what? Okay, this is why PDQ is not charged in this. Because they did a chemical analysis of the explosive chemistry of the bullets found on the scene and the bullets found at PDQ Arm and Prop. And though the head stamps look the same, they have different explosive chemistry, which raises even more questions. Where in the where in the where did the live rounds come from? The prop house, and according to Baldwin's cross complaint that we went over. 
the prop house had live ammo kind of all willy-nilly all over the place. And things were disorganized. That's what's in Baldwin's cross-complaint that we went through. But what's in this probable cause affidavit is that the bullets from PDQ do not match the bullets from the set. So where did the bullets on the set come from? It is so sus. I don't understand it. How did Hannah Gutierrez-Reed bring these bullets on the set? Because it said, except for bullets Gutierrez-Reed may have brought on set. How did these bullets get on set? They didn't come from the prop house, according to the FBI. And in all of this, if there's anything that I trust, it's the chemist. Because I have no reason not to. And I trust the chemist is like, yep, those two things aren't the same. What is happening? Shocked. I'm shocked by this. So surprised. But it explains why the PDQ prop house wasn't criminally charged. Because that is one of the people I, when we initially went through this, I'm like, okay, when we're looking at who's going to get charged, I'm looking at Baldwin, Gutierrez-Reed, PDQ arm and prop, Seth Kinney, and who's PDQ arm and prop, and AD Dave Halls. AD Dave Halls took a plea deal. Kinney seems to be cleared because what was found at his place of work and what was found on the set are not the same. And then we've got Gutierrez-Reed and, and Baldwin. Wild, wild stuff. Getting back into the testing that they were doing and this probable cause declaration, they go on to say, evidence further shows that Baldwin, as an actor who has extensive experience in the film industry involving firearms, failed to demand at least two safety checks between the armor and himself and witnessing the handling of firearms by the first AD. Standard protocol is the armorer is to show the actor the firearm, pull the bullets out in front of the actor, and demonstrate there are no live rounds but dummies in the firearm. Baldwin knows this is standard safety protocol, as he has mentioned it in media interviews and in law enforcement interviews. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed did not do this protocol in front of Baldwin. Baldwin did not object to this action. Reed discusses in her interviews with OSHA and law enforcement, this should have occurred. Reed also acknowledges in her interviews she should have been in the church with the firearm at all times. Instead, she left the church while Baldwin was in possession of the firearm in close proximity to the cast and crew. Baldwin further acknowledges that it is standard protocol for armorers to stay with the firearm at all times in media and interviews. Finally, Baldwin directly pointed the firearm at Hutchins and Souza. Whether guided by her directions or not, Baldwin knew, this is what they're asserting in the probable cause declaration, Baldwin knew the first rule of gun safety is never point a gun at someone you don't intend on shooting. In addition, always assume a gun is loaded. It's like what the entire internet has been saying the whole time. Do not point a gun at someone regardless of their direction. And it goes on later in this probable cause declaration to talk about the fact that the video village where the um, where Sousa and Hutchins could have watched what was going on in front of the camera from not behind the camera when a weapon was being pointed at it was taken down because the crew had walked off due to safety concerns. Not just including misfires on set, of which there were multiple, but also due to travel distance and things like that. 
It goes on to say, had Baldwin performed the required safety checks with the armorer Reed, this tragedy would not have occurred. In addition, if Baldwin had not pointed the gun at Hutchins and Souza, this tragedy would not have occurred. I would like to add one, but they haven't charged anyone with this, so it's hard to add because this is the probable cause declaration. Had a live bullet not been in the gun on set, this tragedy wouldn't have occurred even if the other actions might have occurred. So I have a lot of questions about that live round. It goes on to say the reckless deviation from known standards and practice and protocol directly caused the fatal shooting. Yep. They go through Baldwin as a producer, talk about the fact that he is, quote unquote, an expert in the realm of filmmaking, as Baldwin has asserted publicly himself. So they're using his words against him in the probable cause declaration. He's been on at least 40 films or TV productions that involve firearms. He's directly handled firing a weapon in those or has been in scenes where weapons were directly handled. They go on to say further investigation of this list revealed a multitude of instances either from the movie itself or from the movie poster showing Baldwin with his finger in the trigger guard and on the trigger in instances where, according to industry standards and common firearm safety protocols, it should not have been experts, industry standards, and basic firearm safety protocols and training consider this reckless behavior requiring immediate remediation. And they go through all of the incidents where Baldwin was in charge of this set as a producer and was not adhering to protocol, safety protocol, and the rules of firearm safety. It then talked about the hiring of Hannah Gutierrez-Reed and the fact that Reed was doing too many jobs and was also allowing Sarah Zachary, the head of props, to deal with the weapons as well that Zachary had a negligent discharge and fired a blank at her own foot and it landed next to her foot, but the producers never dealt with it, that A.D. Halls, who was also the safety coordinator on set, never had a safety meeting about it. They assert that the set did not have daily safety meetings and that in 13 days of filming, only three or four safety meetings had ever occurred, that they weren't scheduled, they weren't on the call sheet, they happened haphazardly, and that not everyone was required to attend. They talk about the original camera crew walking off on October 20th and then talk about Hall's failure to adhere to safety protocols as the AD and the head of safety. They talk about Reed allowing the weapon to be loaded and then kind of left out and unsecured during lunch, that there were live rounds found in the bandolier Baldwin was wearing and on the cart, that industry standards, protocols, and common firearm safety procedures were not adhered to and that Baldwin as a producer did not remediate those errors. They say evidence exists to clearly show that on October 21st, 2021, Helena Hutchins was killed when Baldwin fired a firearm that he pointed at her. The evidence and statements documented in the affidavit confirm many instances of extremely reckless acts or reckless failures to act by Baldwin in a 10-day period. Evidence clearly shows that none of the incidents or issues were addressed by Baldwin in his position as actor or producer to mitigate future occurrences of recklessness, correct reckless behavior, or correct training deficiencies. Baldwin's deviation from known standards, practices, and protocols directly caused the fatal death of Hutchins. And then it goes through and says that this is why probable cause exists to charge Baldwin. The probable cause declaration to Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is largely the same the same failure to meet industry standards. It's clear that they've interviewed industry experts that they have lined up as their expert witnesses and have to, to prove that kind of 
wanton disregard or that that um, without due circumscription, they have to know the standards in the movie industry to know whether those were so greatly deviated from to actually charge this involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter is a difficult charge. Jurors don't always like thinking about the fact that you could be criminally charged for what otherwise looks like an accident. And this is not an intentional shooting. No one is saying that Baldwin had criminal malice to think through that he intended to shoot someone. What they're saying is he did a thing so recklessly that this was the consequence of that recklessness, even though it wasn't intentional. Though they do have him pointing a gun at someone and pulling a trigger. So even though there's no malice in a criminal um, state of mindset, in a mens rea capacity, you still have the actus reus of pulling a trigger with a gun pointed at somebody. So again, I'm not surprised there are charges, but these can be difficult charges to bring because jurors don't always like them. With that, we need to talk about who will actually be the prosecutor on this case after we thank our sponsor. Our sponsor, Grove, makes it so easy to get the things you need for a sustainable home. Their aim is to make living a healthy lifestyle easy and accessible. Look, I'm just here for the color-coded everything. I love it. Grove has fantastic cleaning supplies that come with color-coded glass bottles that you just refill the tablets in so you can make your own cleaning solutions at home with water without having to buy endless plastic bottles to clean your house. And they look cute in your shower. Look, I, I can be superficial. I can. I love a color-coded, easy-to-use system that is also sustainable and clean for my family to use. Grove carries over 360 plastic-free products and has many more on the way. Every product at grove.com is guaranteed to be healthy, effective, eco-friendly, and affordable. With every first Grove order, they'll set you up with a 60-day VIP trial, which includes unlimited free shipping, seasonal gifts, and early access to exclusive sales. So if you are ready to try Grove today, go to grove.com slash lawnard for a free starter set plus free shipping with your first order. That's grove.com slash lawnard. Make it easy on yourself. Go check out Grove today. And thank you, Grove, for sponsoring this episode. On February 7th, 2023, Alec Baldwin, through his attorneys, filed a motion to disqualify the special prosecutor. Now, we saw months and months ago, well, last year, truly, and months and months ago, the head prosecutor, the elected DA in Santa Fe, asking to bring on a special prosecutor to just focus on this case. What I didn't know until this motion is that, let's just go to the motion. The special prosecutor in this case, Andrea Reeb, is a member of the New Mexico House of Representatives. Under Section 1, Article 3 of the New Mexico Constitution, however, a sitting member of the legislature may not, quote, exercise any powers properly belonging to either the executive or judicial branch. As a special prosecutor, Representative Reeb is vested by statute with all the powers and duties of a district attorney who is considered to be a member of either the judicial or executive branch of the New Mexico government. And some states consider the district attorney to be judicial. Some states consider them executive. 
I personally think it's more of an executive function, but we're not going to get into the separation of powers and the role of the legislator versus the executive versus the judicial branches of government because we could have an entire rabbit hole on civics right now that I'm going to deeply in my nerd heart try to tear myself away from because when does this ever come up? Well, never, except if the defendant's name is Alec. If the defendant's name is Alec, then this is going to come up because in the Alec Murdoch case, you've got a defense attorney who's a sitting state senator. And in this case, apparently the special prosecutor is also a member of the, the legislature. What? It, it's so odd to me. It's just, it's just, I have never, how many jobs do you need? Why is everybody so eager to have all of the jobs? I don't want all of the jobs. This is a lot, but it's very interesting how the New Mexico Constitution lays out that someone who is a member of the legislature may not be a member of the judicial or executive branch, that it violates their separation of powers. Different in this case than with Alec Murdoch, because with Alec Murdoch, you've got a defense attorney. The defense attorney is not an arm of the state. It's not, he's not wielding the power of another branch of government, be it judicial or executive, because he's acting in the capacity as a defense attorney. In this case, though, it's an interesting argument for me. Will this be properly dismissed? I think there's actually a chance on this one because the district attorney is a member, I think, of the executive branch. They are executing the executive powers of once the legislature has written the laws, they are they are enforcing the laws, essentially, by prosecuting people with their prosecutorial power. I, I mean, yes, I guess you could argue they're part of the judicial branch as well, but I'm just absolute, I, I don't know when this has ever come up, but this special prosecutor ran unopposed and became a member of the legislature in January. So this is new, very new, because was just elected and just took their seat at the beginning of 2023. But in August 2022, the representatives secured their nomination before the general election. The district attorney of the first judicial district announced their involvement as special prosecutor. On August 30th, 2022, the district attorney requested $635,000 in funding from the state of New Mexico Board of Finance for the prosecution of the Rust, the individuals involved with Rust. And the proposed budget included $156,000 for special prosecutor they call representative the entire time, which they should. This is adversarial writing. But for Reeb's salary, the Board of Finance agreed to provide half of the requested funds. The district attorney's office told the Board of Finance it intends to seek additional appropriation from the legislator in the legislative session currently in progress. These funds would be used in part to fund the special prosecutor's salary. So now the special prosecutor is in the position of where they might be asked to approve their own salary, which is odd. And that becomes, even if it's not strictly improper, even if you could split hairs about the propriety, the appearance of impropriety, I think, is pretty great. And that creates a problem. Their argument is that Prosecutor Reeb's continued service as a special prosecutor in the case is unconstitutional. The legal question is not a close one, and she must be disqualified because of the Constitution and the separation of powers. It is, this is, this is the lawyering that I want to see in a case. Whatever you think of Baldwin 
outside of this case, this case is absolutely tragic. I don't think there's any evidence that points to the fact that Baldwin knew or could have even conceived of the fact that there was an actual bullet in the gun. What the evidence is leaning towards is that he disregarded all safety protocol and pointed a firearm at somebody and pulled the trigger, which is fucking insane and dangerous and wild to me. But that's where we're at. But his lawyers were also like, hey, I think we have a separation of powers issue. So kudos to the lawyers for finding an issue that a lot of criminal lawyers wouldn't even necessarily think about at first because it's so unusual that it comes up. And it maybe it happens again. Maybe it happens in smaller jurisdictions where people are serving multiple functions. But this prosecutor and slate legislature one is an interesting overlap because the special prosecutor is a retired district attorney, elected district attorney from another district. So the fact that they've then moved into the state House of Representatives isn't surprising. They should have probably been aware that they couldn't do both, though, because the defense is definitely thinking about it. I'm very interested to see what happens here. I want to see when this is on calendar. And I don't think there's much they can do with this one. Truly, unless there is case law, and of course, we'll see it on the we'll see it on the response from the state. If there is case law directly on point that says that somehow it's not an abuse of separation of powers for someone to serve as a district attorney and be part of the legislature, but the legislature writes the rules that govern what the district attorneys do. So I understand the separation of powers argument, and it's not a terrible argument at all. It's it's novel and it's interesting. So I'm here for all the legally lawful law things that are happening in that. And I can't wait to see, A, how they respond to it and B, what the court decides to do. It seems like most of the uh, legal experts on this one are like, oh, huh, that's going to be a problem. And that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, oh, that's going to be a problem because that's, going to be a problem. We have one more thing we need to talk about today, though. This is also going to be a problem. I don't see how this isn't a problem. Helena Hutchins' family is suing Alec Baldwin at all. It's all. It's all the Rust producers, the companies, the production companies, all of it, for the shooting death of Helena Hutchins. Her family is in the Ukraine The lawsuit alleges that they are stuck in Ukraine due to the war with Russia, and they have sued in California trying to apply the law of New Mexico, stay with me, for this lawsuit. But they have sued for a number of things that in California I don't think you can get, which is why I think they're suing under the law of New Mexico. Why they didn't just sue in New Mexico baffles my mind. So at the beginning, I think we at least have an issue that they might need to sue in New Mexico to apply New Mexico law. However, there there are a multitude of these lawsuits already winding their way through the courts in California. So these defendants clearly have standing in California. But do these plaintiffs have a case for the death of Helena Hutchins when they are not Helena's spouse, because this is her mother, father, and sister suing for battery, intentional infliction of emotional distress, negligence, and loss of consortium. 
Loss of consortium generally doesn't extend beyond a spouse, but can in New Mexico for dependent family members. I don't know if they're going to be able to prove that her parents and sister are dependent family members, but it is possible that Helena's work in the U.S., that money was being sent to her family in Ukraine to help support them. Maybe they are dependent family members in that way that would qualify them under the law in New Mexico. But they are trying to apply New Mexico law in a California court, which is challenging. But this is over the shooting that occurred in New Mexico. So there is an argument there. If people are like, why do lawyers go to law school? This. Because it takes a little bit of chutzpah and creativity to be like, we're going to sue in California, but we're going to use the law in New Mexico because the incident happened in New Mexico. The California companies are in California, but the companies were also operating in New Mexico. So I don't see why not just sue in New Mexico, but maybe it's because it's Gloria Allred's case and she's licensed in California. I don't know. Why are we choosing to sue in California? Maybe there's a press release that I haven't seen because we've been covering day-to-day trial. But I don't see how the family has a cause of action for battery. I don't see how the family has a cause of action for IIED. It's not intentional. And most of those causes of actions have been dismissed in other lawsuits. And I don't know how they have standing in negligence, which is unfortunate. If they have standing in any of this and a cause of action in any of this, maybe the narrowly tailored loss consortium, if they are supported by Helena in some way under New Mexico's law, but I think it's going to be a difficult one to go forward with. I just don't see how Alec shooting her, now I'm calling Alec Baldwin Alec, how Alec Baldwin shooting Helena on a movie set at work rises to a battery cause of action for a non-battered party, the family, rises to IIED when I don't, Baldwin didn't even know he was going to shoot her. So I don't see where the intentional infliction of emotional distress even comes in. But the loss of consortium is interesting. Let's just look at how they pled this real quick in the lawsuit. And they are looking for loss of consortium damages on each of these theories, really. But let's go to the the loss of consortium damages. Plaintiff Olga... Uh, Solovoy is the surviving mother of Helena. And then her father is the, the father. Her sister is her younger sister. All three plaintiffs, Helena's surviving family, suffered direct injury to their close relational interests with Helena and as a direct result have suffered damages for loss of consortium for the emotional distress caused by the harm to their intimate relationship with her. Without the death of Helena, plaintiffs would have continued to maintain their close relationship with her, a familial loving relationship that was sufficiently close, including with that limitation, one that included mutual dependence, shared experiences, financial support and dependence, emotional reliance on one another, and many intimate matters in which plaintiffs and Helena related to each other. So they're talking about close, not physically intimate, just in case that needed to be explained. I don't think it does. You're law nerds, you know. But they're talking about their close family bond and the loss of that close family bond. I don't know if that will be enough, but New Mexico does allow family members loss of consortium. A lot of jurisdictions do not um, when it is dealing with parents to an adult child, siblings, things like that. 
it's an interesting lawsuit. I just, I don't think it's going to get that far. And I think when people read the headlines, they were like, wait, I thought the wrongful death lawsuit settled with regard to Alec Baldwin and Helena's surviving husband, Matthew Hutchins. And that did settle with regard to Baldwin. It's still going on with regard to the insurance companies and the production companies and such. But with regard to Baldwin personally, it did settle. I don't think this lawsuit is going to get too far. I think we're going to see a lot of motions to dismiss. And I will keep an eye on those motions to dismiss and keep you up to date. It's interesting to see, but I don't, I just don't see how it's going to get very far at all. If you disagree, please let me know. I would love to be able to wrap my head around this more, but I just, maybe loss of consortium, I mean, but on the IIED and the battery, I just don't see a theory under which they can recover. And I don't see what they could add to this complaint to help it. So I think it's ripe for some motions to dismiss. You're going to get your your California version of a 12B6 failure to state a claim incoming from most of these defendants. Because again, they have sued Rust Movie Productions, Alexander R. Baldwin, El Dorado Pictures, Ryan Donnell Smith, Langley Cheney, Thompson Pictures, and all the rest of it. Everyone who was sued in the other lawsuits with regard to the script supervisor. Script supervisor is also represented by Gloria Allred, that Mamie Mitchell lawsuit. So I'm not surprised that all of the same individuals were sued. Would love to know your thoughts on this one. I hope you have and had a wonderful Valentine's Day. I want to let you know how much I love you and appreciate you, not just for being here, but for being such an incredible community, having conversations with you all on the regular about the nerdy, nerdy law stuff that I love really has been a tremendous experience for me. There really aren't words of how much I love and cherish this community, the conversations we have, the way we're able to look at cases and break them down together and on such an incredible scale. And it started with this podcast, which is why it's so special to me, but it's special to me because of you. And I very much appreciate that. So know that you are loved. I love our community. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Giant hugs from me to you. And, you know, may your family be well. May your Wi-Fi be strong. (laughs) May your toilet paper be plentiful. and. May the odds be ever in your favor. I hope you had a good one and I will talk to you in the next one. You can find more Law Nerd goodness in our private Law Nerd community over at lawnerdsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at The Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the QuickBits podcast and QuickBits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Lawnard.